0: The True Crime Society podcast contains adult themes and violence and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. guys welcome to another episode of the true crime society podcast with stephanie and olivia it's wednesday march 16th at the time of recording i don't think that'll really matter because i don't think there'll be an update with this case but (laughs) hopefully that would be amazing if so so hopefully i'm jinxing it (laughs) (laughs) after after sherry we i believe in anything yeah no it's crazy one random thing of note. We are recording on like a different software today than we usually do because the one that we were, I know no one like cares about this, but I just feel like I have to explain. Um, The one we normally were recording on, it started getting really glitchy. I mean, it was free, so whatever. So we're trying a new one. Hopefully it sounds good. If it sounds weird or off we won't use this one again but I won't really know till after I record it and if you notice like any of our last few episodes I know there's parts where they sounded a little glitchy kind of hopefully that won't be happening anymore but you know we're not in a professional. Professional studio or anything. I'm literally in like a closet. So <laughs> <laughs> we've got to work with what we got. We've, yeah. We've got to get there one day. We'll have a studio one day. <laughs> I was just saying to Mike, I was like, when we like move out of this apartment, I really want a real like desk and a real desktop computer because I feel like it'd be easier
1: <laughs> to edit on. I just want a real setup because right now I've got yeah. the most depressing setup. Like, I've moved my computer around a whole bunch of times and I'm currently in my bedroom. But yeah, I'd love to have a proper setup as well.
0: Yeah, especially for like editing because with the, I do it all on a MacBook and I don't have, I know I can buy a mouse for it, but I don't have a mouse. It's pretty small screen. And if I could have like dual screens like I do at my job, that'd make my life so much easier. We're well, getting there, getting there. <laughs> so that's the glamorous life of a <laughs> podcast that's not massively famous. <laughs> So, today, I know I I hinted by saying, like, I don't think there'll be an update in this case, but hopefully. Today, we are going to be talking about Kyron Horman, who was seven years old when he disappeared out of Oregon. You know, we can't get away from the word Oregon, Oregon. (laughs) For the past three episodes, it's come up and just haunting me. So, I don't know. I'll try try to say Oregon, because I feel like that's the more acceptable way to say it. But... I might throw in an org on. You just never know.
1: <laughs>
0: so anyways, we were just saying before how this case is a pretty big case. Like there's tons of documentaries, T V shows have covered it. Like I know HLN had like a show on it that I watched recently. And I thought it was a case that pretty much everyone knew, kind of like what I assumed about Susan Powell. But I put up a little Instagram poll today and I made the options like, Yes, I've filed this case closely or I've heard of it, but didn't really follow it super closely or never heard of it and never heard of it and didn't follow closely were much higher than the people who had followed it closely.
1: Um, Yeah, it's interesting because I also have followed this one from the start and I, you know, I I think I just assumed because I guess all the true crime people that I know have also followed it from the start, but now there's a whole new... Um, I guess, generation. (laughs) That makes me sound really old, but a new generation of true crime fans who are around that actually probably haven't heard of these cases that are 10 years and more older. So yeah, I think it'll be an interesting one. Tons of information. And it's quite yeah a crazy, sad case. Parts of it remind me of uh, Gannon Stouch in a way, maybe the evil stepmother thing. Yeah. And a lot of it also reminds me of Timothy Pitson, which I don't know if you remember that one. That's a case that was a similarly, that happened at like a similar time. um, And he's still missing as well, which I'll go into a bit of detail a bit later about his case. But there are yeah definitely a few similarities with other cases with Kyron's case.
0: Yeah. So we did get a lot of requests to cover this one or to make posts about it. It's one of those cases where just people have followed, a lot of people have followed it for a long time and want to see it solved. So there's a lot of passionate people about this one. So I'm happy to be doing it. Very passionate people over the years. <laughs> Before we get into the whole story about Kyra, and we just wanted to mention a podcast that we think you guys should all check out, um, our friends over at The Murder Diaries. The Murder Diaries podcast is hosted by Natalie and Paige, who met on Bumble BFF. They swiped right and instantly bonded over tacos and true crime. Who doesn't love that? I might have tacos for dinner. Um, Thus, the Murder Diaries podcast (laughs) was born. Every week, they tell one true crime story at a time. The Murder Diaries podcast listeners span all age ranges and demographics, but the bulk are millennials and Gen Xers. So I feel like if you like our podcast, you'll probably like theirs, too.
1: The Murder Diaries gives voices to the voiceless, humanising and sharing the stories of true crime victims. They also spread awareness about unresolved cases. That's what they say, but there's some really great reviews. One of them says, As a family member of someone that has been murdered and the case has gone cold, I appreciate podcasts like this. They get the victim's stories and make people more aware of cases they may not have known about. They do it in such a respectful way and I've really loved listening. Another great review they got was, I could listen to Paige and Natalie all day. The way they tell the story makes me feel like I'm literally talking to them and they're pulling the words right out of my head. I recommend them to all my friends who are interested in true crime. So new episodes are released every Thursday and are available
0: on all podcast platforms. Be sure to search for and subscribe to The Murder Diaries on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. You can also find them on TikTok and Instagram at The Murder Diaries Pod. All right, now let's get right into Kyron.
2: Kyle came to school this morning. Um, Kyron. Kyron came to school this morning. He's seven
3: years old with his stepmom for the science fair. He was wearing this outfit. Well, Steph, the sheriff's they department walked launched a massive search within an hour of learning that Kyron was missing. Refugators, the Test FBI is also on scene. check, one, two, three, four, five. Kyron. We're gonna, we're gonna bring you home, buddy. Uh-huh. Nothing is more important to your family, your friends, to us, so. Police are not releasing a lot of details except to say the case is now a criminal investigation.
1: I was fully expecting them to just slap the cuffs on her and take her away. They're gonna do it any second. They're, they're, They're gonna take her away. They're gonna do it. Here we go. This is gonna happen. And it doesn't work that way.
0: Kyron Richard Horman was born on September 9th, 2002 at St. Vincent's Hospital in Portland, Oregon. See, Oregon. (laughs) (laughs) His parents were Desiree Young and Kane Horman. Kane was working as an engineer for Intel at the time. Desiree had been married before, and we've read that she had a child during her first marriage as well. Desiree and Kane had split up for good when she was eight months pregnant, which is... Red flag automatically f- for me. Desiree said the two split due to irreconcilable differences. After Kyron was born, the two parents had shared custody. That arrangement seemed to be working well until Desiree was diagnosed with kidney failure in 2004. She often traveled to Canada to get treatment for her illness. And due to her health, Kane took over full custody of Kyron. So Desiree was always involved in his life, even though she didn't have full custody. She was always still there. It's not like she became an absent parent or anything.
1: Yeah, I've seen a lot of comments over the years about like, why didn't, because, you know, generally, generally, the mother usually has custody of the child or at least, you know, half, you know, shared custody. So a lot of people have been like, well, she wasn't involved, whereas she is very involved now. So I feel like she always was. She was just actually physically unable to care for Kyron at that time.
0: Yeah. And I know, I don't know if like she was getting dialysis or anything, but I knew someone who used to have to get dialysis, and it takes, like, hours and hours and hours. So if you have to do that so often, it just takes up so much time where you can't really be watching a small child. Yeah. Kane remarried a woman named Terry Moulton in 2007. Kyron would have been around five at this time. Terry was a substitute teacher from Roseburg, Oregon. Kane and Terry had known each other for years. They first got together when Kane was still with Desiree in 2001. Um, we've read that they were in the process of divorcing when Kane and Terry first hooked up, but, um, I kind of don't believe that personally.
1: Yeah. There's, there's a, any article you read is there, there is different, like there's differences. Some people say that and other people, you know, have another story. So we're not entirely sure, but they did know each other for a long time anyway. Yeah. Like
0: this might be an ignorant comment, but I don't think it is. I just feel like if you're getting divorced at eight months pregnant, something happened besides just like, we don't get along but sometimes maybe people just don't get along. I don't know. We've also read in other articles that Terry and Desiree were friends for years. Terry originally moved in with Kane to take on the role as caregiver for Kyron. So a bit of background into Terry now. She was born March 14th, 1970, and grew up in Roseburg. She was the daughter of two teachers, Carol and Larry Moulton. She graduated from Roseburg High School in 1988, and went to Umpqua Community College, where she first met her husband, Ron Tarver. They got married in 1991. Terry and Ron had a son named James Logan. He was born January 26, 1994. Then the couple divorced in 1995. In 1999, they appeared in court over child support, over a child support dispute. Court documents indicate that Ron did not pay any child support between 1996 and 1998, Kerry had remarried by that time. She married a man named Richard Ecker in 1996. He legally adopted James in 1998. And then the couple split up. Richard paid over $500 a month in child support for years. So the story seems very hectic.
1: Yeah, so she was married twice before she married Kane. Yeah, like, you know, obviously it doesn't really matter, but she's had a very um, checkered history, I guess.
0: Yeah, I mean... For a normal person, obviously, it's not weird to get remarried. But in this situation, kind of just things like this just keep
1: adding up to her character that might not be so great. And also, if you think about it, she was quite young, so she would have been 28 and had already been married twice. So that seems quite quick.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We might sound judgy, but like I said, we know the whole story. <laughs>
1: yeah. And yeah, I think the reason, like, you might be like, why are you telling me all this? We don't really need to know. Like, Terry is a main, main player in this story. So I feel like her background is probably some of the most important in this case.
0: Yeah, it all kind of helps develop her character. It'll come back later. I promise. <laughs> <laughs> so back to Kane and Terry. So again, Kane is Kyron's father. Their wedding was held in Kauai, Hawaii, in April 2007. Automatically reminds me of Lori and Chad every time now. (laughs) Kane bought Terry a brand new Mustang as a Mother's Day gift the same year. Um, She wrote under the picture of it on her Facebook page, something shiny for the driveway. And she said, yes, Kane is all that in a bag of chips! Exclamation point. So as if that comment wasn't cringy enough, the license plate for the Mustang read R-D-S-Q-R-L. And I'm sure you're like, what the heck does that mean? Well, (laughs) it is short for Red Squirrel, which is apparently Terry's nickname due to her red hair. Cute, I guess. (laughs) Uh. (laughs) I hate vanity license plates. I don't know. Sometimes I see a funny one, but most I see them just like, why did you go through the effort to get that?
1: And here, they're really expensive. Like, you've got to pay, like, really my state anyway, $500 a year just to keep your license plate. Like, I think it depends on the amount of personalization that you have. So that would be the most personalized. That would be over 500 wow. bucks a year just to have that. That's crazy. I
0: don't know what it costs here, but that's wild. <laughs> so Kane and Terry, they had a daughter together in 2008 named Kiara. Seems the Horman family was very into K names, very Kardashian-esque. Kane and Terry chose Kiara as it represented the family tradition. Some other family members are Curtis, Kane's father, Kari, Kane's aunt, Curtis again. Oh, no, Curtis. And then uh, Kane's aunt. And then Curtis married a woman named Christy, and they had Kane and his brother Christian with no, a K.
1: So, uh, obviously. Kane's, P- Kane's parents are Curtis and Christy, and his brother is Christian or with a K.
0: <laughs> yes. And then there is. Uh, Kari somewhere in there, the (laughs) ant. Terry was a competitive bodybuilder, and there's lots of info online about that career of hers. She she had also been in a bit of trouble in the past. In 2005, she was arrested for drunk driving along Interstate 5. James was 11 years old and was in the car at the time. She had a blood alcohol level of 0.15%, and she was charged with DUI and reckless child endangerment. Terry pleaded guilty and took a diversion course. The Horman family were said to be close knit. They apparently enjoyed playing board games, going bowling, and traveling. In 2009, they visited Walt Disney World in Orlando, Florida, together. Adam Farber, who runs a swimming school and taught Kyron to swim, he said they're very nice people. They all fit in really well. So no like major red flags, it seems. Seems like they. from the outside looking in, they were just kind of like a normal family. Terry stopped teaching when Kyron was young so she could focus on motherhood. Jamie Finster, a friend from junior high school who worked with Terry in the school district, said she stopped teaching and subbing so she could be with Kyron during his preschool and toddler years. When Kyron started elementary school, it was at Skyline Elementary School near Forest Park in Oregon. Skyline is a K-8 school that has over 300 students enrolled. Kyron seemed to be a great student. He had been put into advanced placement math. He was also learning sign language, which seemed to come very naturally to him. So things seemed to be going pretty smoothly for the Horman clan. They were all getting along in their co-parenting situation, and the kids all seemed well-adjusted. Kyron was seven years old on June 4th, 2010. And he usually rode the bus to school. However, Terry had planned to drive Kyron to school on June 4th. He had prepared a project, which was, you know, one of those big, large, trifold project boards that you used in elementary school for science fairs. I'm sure most people recall. (laughs) Um, So he prepared a project about red-eyed tree frogs and was excited to show off his project to his stepmom that morning. Kyron and Terry had to arrive at the school early so that she could see his project. We've also read some articles that say Terry purposefully drove Kyron so that she could bring his project home in the truck, and she apparently didn't realize that the science fair was going to be going all day, so she couldn't take it home. So I'm guessing, it's a little confusing, but I'm guessing the project was at school already, and she had to go to see
1: it early with the parents? From what I've read, the project was definitely at school, so they didn't have to take it. But I believe it was like the science fair was open to parents or whoever wanted to come and view it from like 8 a.m. to 8.45. And then after that, the rest of the school was going to go through the science fair. So if the parents wanted to come, they had to come before school that day, basically. So she was like, oh, might as well just bring them in with me. Yeah, yeah. And I I don't know, like, I, I don't know if the story about her thinking she could bring it home is true or if that's something that's kind of been added in after, but... I don't know. Anyway, yeah, that's her story. Seems like a dumb thing to think. Yeah, like, like why would you bring a science bring
0: project home? home at the start of the day? At 8.45 in the morning. <laughs>
1: it's very strange.
0: We're not all science fair experts.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so Kiara was also with Terry and Kyron on this day. The trio arrived at the school around 8 a.m., They went to Kyron's classroom and dropped off his coat and his backpack, and then they all went to the gymnasium where the science fair was being held. Kyron excitedly showed off his project about frogs to his stepmom and friends and even snapped a picture in front of his project. And this is a pretty famous photo, I would say, I guess. Like, it's kind of a last images. It is a last images, like it's right before he disappeared. But it's a picture that anyone who has followed the case would recognize. It is a picture of him standing in front of his science fair project that morning. So Kyron was definitely at the school this day. Terry and Kyron were seen by multiple witnesses during this time by students and staff members who would later recall seeing the two around 815 that morning. The science fair began to wrap up for parents around 8.45, and Terry has said that she saw Kyron walking to his first class as she left with Kiara. Carol Moulton, Terry's mother, has said, this is a quote, he told her, I'm going back to the classroom. She thought he was safely at school, just like he is every day. So all the children were meant to go to their classrooms and divide up into small groups. Each group was supposed to tour the science fair with a chaperone. Afterward, when they returned to their classes for roll call, Kyron wasn't there. He was marked absent for the day.
3: Seven-year-old Kyron Horman was last seen after his stepmother, Terry Horman, so his picture, drove him to school for one of the biggest days of the year the school science fair The
1: second grader at Skyline Elementary had worked hard on his project for the
3: science fair this is a picture she took of the second grader with his project the red-eyed tree frog after touring exhibits together they say goodbye in the school hallway she leaves for home Kyron heads toward his classroom it's the last time anyone remembers seeing him Terry Horman posts photos of Kyron from the Science Fair on her Facebook
4: page. Kyron doesn't get off the school bus. His stepmom calls
3: the school and learns the teacher had marked him absent. This is devastating for the family, as you might guess, and for anybody that knows him. We just want to make sure he gets home
1: safe.
0: After Terry left the school, she started to run some errands. Her daughter, Kiara, had been suffering from an ear infection and had a prescription sent to a Fred Meyer pharmacy. Terry went to the Fred Meyer in Hillsboro first, and when she got there, she realized that was the wrong store. She still purchased some items there, and her receipt is timed 9.12 a.m. Terry then drove to the Fred Meyer in Beaverton along Southwest Walker Road, which is actually where the prescription for Kiara had been sent. So after completing her Fred Meyer stops, she then went to Magic Dry Cleaners in Beaverton, where she dropped off some of Kane's clothes to be cleaned. The owner of the dry cleaner has said that Terry came in and said she left Kiara in the car while she dropped the items off. Tisk tisk. While in Beaverton, she also went to Michael's craft store. She is known to have left there around 10 a.m. So Terry's movements are basically accounted for from the time she left the school at 845 until she finished up in Beaverton around 10 a.m. After this, things are a little unclear. Terry has said that Kiara was distressed with her ear infection and that the movement of the car seemed to help settle her. They apparently drove around random roads in the area for 90 minutes while Terry waited for the medicine to take effect. Some reports say that Terry made a phone call around 1039 that day, but this has never really been confirmed as far as we know. Um, We couldn't find any other details on the alleged call. We've just seen it mentioned in passing some places next confirmed movement of terry comes at 11:39. she went to her gym 24 hour fitness in beaverton she left kiara to she left kiara at the gym's daycare while she worked out for the better part of the next hour eventually picking up kiara a little a little afternoon and chatting with her friends for 15 to 20 minutes so that's kind of weird Seems to like me a, too because like yeah what are you gonna say about the ear infection
1: yeah, I was going to say it seems like a very quick turnaround from the kid being so distressed that they yeah. have to drive around for an hour and a half to the kid being fine to go to the gym crèche or gym daycare. Like, I get that medicine starts to work, but it generally probably doesn't make that much of a difference in 90 minutes, especially for an ear infection. Um, yeah, ear infections are I pretty miserable. Yeah, so it seems weird to me that the kid was so distressed yet had to drive around, but then she's fine the next minute to go to the gym. It's a very strange story. Yeah, that – part always has seemed weird
0: to me and I wonder if I'm sure the police have like interviewed the daycare people but I wonder if the daycare people like noticed her being upset yeah. you know or like noticed her being sick and uncomfortable or if I that feel like the lie. kid well I guess she did get probably, the prescription
1: yeah that's what I mean like I feel like the kid probably was sick but maybe not to the extent of needing to drive around for 90 minutes and that was for another reason
0: maybe something else was happening during those 90 minutes so Terry left the gym around 1240 and drove the 11 miles back to her house. She arrived home just before 1 p.m. From there, she got onto Facebook at 121 p.m. And she began uploading photos on Facebook into an album titled June 2010, which included photos of Kiara and Kyron. This is when the photo of Kyron at the siren- at the science fair was uploaded online. Remember Facebook albums? I feel like no one does that anymore. <laughs> So around this time, she also emailed Kyron's teacher asking when she could come pick up his project to bring home. She's very focused on that. Kane returned home from the office around this time. It's been reported that he intended to work at home for the rest of the day. At 3.30 p.m., Kane, Terry, and Kiara all left the house to walk to the bus stop to meet Kyron. When the bus arrived, Kyron didn't get off. Kane and Terry spoke with the bus driver and discovered that Kyron had never boarded after school. They quickly called the school to let them know the situation. Terry called 911 while she and Kane were driving to Kyron's school, trying to figure out what was going on. At 3.46 p.m., Skyline Elementary Secretary Susan Hall also called 911 to report Kyron as being missing. The Multnomah County Sheriff's Office arrived at Skyline Elementary at about 4 p.m. that afternoon. It seems like the adults in this case figured out very quickly that they lost a lot of time considering that Kyron was last seen around 8.45 and it was after three before anyone realized that he was gone. The sheriff's spokeswoman, Lieutenant Mary Lindström, told the press, We definitely got a late start here. The family didn't know that he wasn't at school. His teachers didn't see him, so we are feeling like we're behind the eight ball here. Kyron's school, Skyline Elementary, was located right next to a large forested area and surrounded by tall grass and hills. This made it hard to search as there was no clear line of sight. Of course, the school did not have CCTV at this time, so the police had to rely on witness statements when beginning their search. This is one of those ones where it's just like everything goes um, wrong. Like the stars aligned in a
1: bad way. Yeah. A perfect storm of bad circumstances. It was a weekend, so no one was around, and no one was going to be around for days. Yeah, it was bad. And then due to the science fair, the campus
0: had essentially been open to the public that day. There had been a large number of people coming and going, and as a one-off, nobody had been required to check in at the school's office. This made it very hard for police to know where to begin when questioning people who had been on the school grounds,
1: because they didn't even really know who was actually there. Yeah, like there would have been grandparents, aunts, uncles, siblings, like there would have been heaps of people.
0: Apparently some weird pedophile off the street could have just walked in. (laughs) like Took advantage. Yeah, that's what they do, I think. Police determined that Kyron was last confirmed to be seen around 8.45am that morning. There was one report that said he'd been seen at 9, but this claim ended up being
1: retracted. I think that claim about the 9 a.m. was made by another child and they were a little bit confused or something like that. So it ended up being that 8.45 a.m. was the absolute last confirmed time that anyone had seen him there.
0: Mm. Many people have questioned why nobody at the school filed up on Chiron's absence. It seems like this was due to um, a miscommunication. Terry apparently told teachers on June 4th that Chiron had a doctor's appointment. So the science fair this day was June 4th. So the faculty assumed that that's where he was after the science fair, that he went to the fair, then went to the doctor. But Terry was incorrect in the doctor's appointment. It had actually been booked for the week after June 11th. So again, perfect storm situation, whether it was um, by accident or on purpose, we yeah. don't know. You have to wonder if that's a deliberate omission of the date by Terry. hmm Kyron's teachers would assume he would return to school after his appointment and nobody raised the alarm when he did not come back later that day. They all just assumed
1: he was out with Terry. I've been googling while you were t- talking and I th- I'm pretty sure his school bag and coat were still at the school when they got there to search for him. So maybe that was also another reason that the teachers believed he was coming back because he'd left his stuff there. Like if he had no plans to come back, especially for the and it was over the weekend, you would have thought he probably would have taken his bag, but Hmm. You know, if it was still there, maybe they did just assume he was coming back. And no one actually realized until it got to the end of the day and he hadn't come back. Around
0: 5.30 p.m., a text was sent to all parents who had kids in the Portland School District using the district's rapid broadcast message system. The text message read, Kyron Horman did not arrive at home today. And anyone with information was asked to contact the
1: authorities. Seems like a weird text. Like they,
4: I was going to say, is there more to it? Or- <laughs>
1: Well, yeah, well Maybe there is more and it just hasn't been made public, but where's the information? Like a kid who's this tall and this, you know, this weight, you think that would be more useful than just a name of who most of them aren't going to know?
0: Yeah, like nowadays, and I know if anything happens like at my little cousin's school or just like the local schools, it's like a whole essay statement that you get, not just, Kyron Horman did not arrive at home. So, at this point, it is essentially the weekend. Police found it difficult to contact parents and students, and arrange for them to be questioned. Police did begin a physical search on Friday night. This timeline of the initial search is from OregonLive.com and says the first search teams arrived at Skyline School at 8.09 p.m. And shortly after, at 8.15 p.m., Lieutenant Mary Lindstrand also arrived at the school and met with those present. She then began emailing a photo of Kyron to local media. Deputy Mark Heron, the search and rescue coordinator, arrived at 8.25 p.m. And at 9.48 p.m., Mountain Wave, which is an emergency communications and search and rescue group based in Gresham, also arrived at the school. At 10.40 p.m., officers reported they had completed a search of Skyland School, including all crawl spaces, storage areas, classrooms, and outbuildings. And they had also searched the Horman House. That brings us to 1044, a tips are called 911 to make sure officers check the train tunnel in the area near the school. The caller said sometimes kids play in there and wants to make sure that somebody checks that out. So I'm assuming they checked it out.
3: By nine o'clock, as we watched search teams wade through high grassy fields, Kyron had been missing more than 13 hours. Police declared the area a major crime scene. By morning, the military and crews on the ground joined the search.
4: He's not the kind of child that would just go out of school and just go, you know, searching or wandering around. He's just a very timid, sweet boy.
3: Okay. All
2: right,
3: let me know. Okay. Good afternoon. My name is Jason Gates. I'm a captain with the Multnomah County Sheriff's Office and I'm the incident commander. In addition to the teams in the sky and on the ground, we're told about 50 detectives are also working the case. The focus, the area around the school. We're moving forward under the premise that we're looking for a a living Kyron Orman. The
0: search on the first night wrapped up at around 3.23 a.m. on Saturday morning. So they spent a lot of time looking for him, but unfortunately, er hours had already passed. The search began again on the Saturday just hours later at 5 a.m. So they only took a few hours off from the search. Officials worked with volunteers and tracking dogs to try to find Kyron. Most of the early search efforts were focused on the two-mile area surrounding the school. Police looked into nearby Salvi Island, which was around six miles away from the school. They really seemed to focus on the area around Salvi Island Bridge, which crossed the Columbia River, but would never publicly state why they were so focused on that area. Terry posted on Facebook at 8.58 a.m. on Sunday, June 6th, so this is two days later now, saying she had ordered missing person flyers. She wrote, I ordered 1,000 flyers. They will be coming to our house. I will let people know they are, when they are here, and we can go from there. Thank you, everyone. Their search for Kyron proved fruitless. On June 9th, five days after he was last seen, Kyron's family released a statement. The statement says, Kyron's family would like to thank people for support and interest in finding their son. The outpouring of support and continued effort strengthens their hope. We need for folks to continue to assist us in our goal. Please search your properties, cars, outbuildings, sheds, etc. Also check with neighbors and friends who may be on vacation or may need or may need assistance in searching. There are a lot of resources here to help you search, so please don't stop. It's obviously a difficult time and they want to speak to the public so you can hear it from Kyron's family as they come together to share their message. Their objective, their objective is to keep the focus on Chiron and not about anything else.
1: So the physical search for Kyron was stopped after 10 days. It had been the largest search in Oregon history and it had involved 1,300 searches from three states. The Sheriff's Office announced after the 10 days that the investigation would now become a full-scale criminal investigation. The FBI became involved in the search during the first week. They'd not only dispatched their behavioral analysis unit to help create a profile for Kyron, but had also deployed their child abduction rapid deployment team. So it was taken very seriously from, you know, day one almost. Um, The family held a press conference on June 11. You may have seen some images or videos from this press conference. Desiree and Terry were there together crying. Um, Desiree had been living in Medford, Oregon, but she'd come to Portland to search for him. By the end of June, the reward in Kyron's case had grown to $50,000. Terry's father, Larry, spoke to people and he said they basically asked him if they thought Terry would be arrested. And he had tears in his eyes when he said it's 50-50. So that's yeah. an interesting comment from her dad very soon after Kyron went missing. From your own dad. Yeah. So the tide started to turn against Terry very quickly. She had been the last person to see Kyron, essentially. So, you know, I guess she was the first place that people started looking. In late June, this is so random, um, Kane had been told by police that Terry had offered their landscaper, Rodolfo Sanchez, quote, a lot of money to kill him. You may have seen Rodolfo referred to as Rudy in some media reports. So if you're reading that, Rodolfo is the same person as Rudy. Rodolfo later testified that Terry approached him in January that year. So around six months before Kyron went missing and asked him to kill Kane. He was told it to make, make it look like Kane was killed in a mugging. Terry denies that this conversation ever happened though. Um, the police documents that have been released say that Terry told Rudy that carry, Kane often carried around an excess of cash. So any attack on him would look like a mugging. Terry told Rudy that he could keep any money that Kane did have on him which was estimated to be around $10,000 cash, as well as a laptop that he constantly hauled around. Um, Rudy told police that Terry asked him to kill Kane because he had been abusive to her and he was planning to divorce her and take custody of their child, Kiara. Um, investigators convinced Rudy to confront Terry while wearing an audio surveillance device, but they were unable to obtain any evidence and they couldn't make an arrest. I have seen that Terry got a little bit suspicious and didn't really want to, you know, say anything, which makes a lot of sense, really. On June 28th, So this is less than a month after Kyron went missing. Kane filed for divorce and he also obtained a restraining order against Terry. In the divorce filing, Kane stated that, quote, he believed Terry is involved in the disappearance of my son Kyron. The divorce took a while, but it was eventually granted and Terry was only allowed to see Kiara during supervised visits. All of the Horman family, so Desiree, Kane and Terry, took polygraph tests. Terry was the only one that seemed to have any trouble passing them. She took two tests between June 24 and June 25. Sorry, June 4 and June 25. She failed one and apparently walked out of the second after she became frustrated by the questioning. There's a clip here of Terry talking about the polygraph tests that she
2: took. There's been a lot made of the fact that you've taken three polygraphs and that the polygraph operators have reported that you failed the first two polygraphs and that you walked out in frustration on the third before it really got going. Um, And you've said that the first polygraph seemed to be kind of a normal protocol, the second one seemed like a hurry up job that they didn't really do half of what they did on the first one. Right. And the third one was very frustrated and you didn't actually do it.
4: So the, the first one was approximately an hour long and reading the results took about three hours to do it. Um, I'm very hard of hearing virtually deaf in my left ear so I have to look at people when I talk to them to understand what they're saying. He was behind me when he was doing the first polygraph. Um, so it took me a little bit of time to process what he was saying to respond. I was gone for the three hours while he put it together, came back, and he just, I don't even know what was up on the screen, but he said, you failed, and I was like, how can I possibly fail? I told the truth. And then they came in. Um, two of the uh, Bobby O'Donnell, lead investigator, another guy named Will. He's an FBI guy. He was part of the group, and uh, were talking to me about it. And after discussion of it, I, I was upset. Went back, and I had at that time uh, called Kane, and I told him, "I'm just done cooperating. I have had it. I cannot believe that they're focused on me, or they're not focusing where they need to be." Police began to
1: focus on the 90 minute time frame that we spoke about earlier, where Terry said she was driving around in the car with Kiara. There was no way they could verify exactly where she'd been. I'm guessing there was probably no GPS in the truck. You know, I guess back in 2010, things were a lot less advanced than they are now. Um, Police distributed flyers of Terry's car and they asked anyone who had seen it that morning to contact the police. Over the years, the possibility of Terry's phone maybe peeing off a tower near Sovie Island has been discussed. If that's true, it may explain why the police did focus on that area so early on. And I guess, you know, if the bridge did go over a river, maybe the theory was that Kyron could have ended up in that river somehow. Um, it's also emerged publicly at this time that Terry's son James had moved out of the house he shared with Terry and Kane. He went to live with his grandparents. He'd done this just months before Karen vanished and it led to people questioning kind of the timing what was going on with Terry that made her so unbearable to live with and what was you know what was going on with her behaviour at this time. After Terry and Kane split up, Terry very quickly moved on with another man named Michael Cook. Michael had gone to school with Kane and he'd also participated in the search for Kyron. Terry had retained an attorney by the end of June, a man named Stephen Howes. I don't know how Terry gets all these men. (laughs) She has a number four now. Yeah, well, number four that we know of, so. In July 2010, a Multnomah County grand jury subpoenaed several friends of Terry, including DD Spicer. Just as kind of a note, her name is spelled S-P-I-C-H-E-R, and we have seen it pronounced a few different ways, but Spicer seems to be a fairly common one, so we'll go with that. Um, Desiree and Kane described DD Dee Dee as having been in close communication with Terry and provided Terry with support and advice that is not in the best interests of our son. Police said at the time that Dee Dee was extremely cooperative and allowed a search of her property and car, and she was also questioned for hours by police. But Dee Dee's movements are pretty sketchy. On the day of Kyron's disappearance, she apparently abruptly left her work, which was gardening, for a homeowner on Germantown Road in northwest Portland at around 11.30am, and she returned around 90 minutes later. So same kind of time frame that Terry was driving around in the car, apparently. She also allegedly helped Terry purchase an untraceable cell phone. Dee Dee spoke to the media and she said, there's this horror that my friend is going through. If I thought for a second that she was capable of foul play, I would not have been there. She would not have been my friend in the first place. So Kane and Desiree were also subpoenaed by this grand jury in August 2010. There is some info from Oregonian.com about the grand jury. It says, A grand jury has heard from at least 40 witnesses and continues to meet intermittently. The district attorney's office has an extra prosecutor assigned to the case through June. Barring an unexpected evidentiary development, the investigation is going to continue for months. And that quote was from Norm Frank, who's the Multnomah County's chief deputy district attorney. In August 2010, police announced they were looking to identify a second person who had allegedly been seen in Terry's truck on the day that Kyron disappeared. Bruce McCain, who's now a former sheriff for the Multnomah County, told CBS News the identity of that second person, if he or she existed, could be critical in determining what happened to Kyron after 9am on June 4. I have read some comments that say the person was apparently seen in the car outside the school, so I don't know if that... Is correct or not but that is one area where I've seen this second person mentioned. By November that year the search for Chiron had cost around 1.4 million dollars and police had investigated 4,257 tips. I found another article from December that outlines how, you know, enormous this case was. The quote is, Metal shelving holds 63 white binders, each four inches thick, filled with thousands of pages of police reports. Two laptops on a conference table contain the FBI software that sorts the 4,257 tips received. Stacks of maps in a room down the hall plot the 155 square miles that have been searched. The Sheriff Dan Station said at the end of 2010, the scope is narrowing. My belief is we should be relatively close to something by then. And that's why I set the time frame that I did. I believe they had extended kind of the investigation to go just into 2011. So when he talks about that time frame, that's what he's referring to. He said, while we may not be at an arrest or an indictment phase, we're going to have it narrowed down to a point where we may be calling out a suspect, identifying certain people or things. So emails that Terry had sent to her friends came to light around the end of that year. Terry seemed to blame Kyron for her marriage troubles in these emails. There's a really good blog on this case from unsolved.me. I'll put it in the blog, but this info is directly from there. It said, in several emails, Terry also described her husband as being overbearing and described an overall toxic household that was quickly becoming unstable. It is unknown how much of this was true or had been exaggerated by a woman going through some serious issues. These emails seem to contain some language that concerned those with access to them. Among those people was Desiree's young, who's Kyron's mother, and she later said about these emails. It's very clear from Terry's horrible words that she had a severe hatred for Kyron and that she blamed a lot of the marital problems on Chiron. I really so want to know what they I've said. Never s- Yeah, I've never seen them made public. I'm assuming it's part of the investigation, but yeah, it sounds like they weren't great. Things seem to kind of move very quickly in this case, like from the start, it moved very quickly, but by the end of the year, it had really quietened down. There wasn't much going on. I'm guessing there was, you know, occasional searches based on tips or leads that they got, but there really wasn't a whole lot going on in the case. In June 2012, Desiree filed a lawsuit against Terry. The civil suit claimed that Terry was, quote, responsible for the disappearance of Chiron. In addition to seeking approximately $10 million in damages, the suit was aimed if at proving, if not criminally, then through civil court that Terry had kidnapped Chiron. Terry attempted to delay the suit, and she was denied by a federal court judge on August 15, 2012. During the legal proceedings, D.D. Spicer was also called. She refused to answer any of the 142 questions that were asked of her. That would have been so infuriating. I hate watching things like that where they're like, no comment, no comment, no comment. No comment. Oh, my God. It just drives me crazy. Um, Some of the questions that they asked Dee Dee were about her movements on June 4, as well as her contact with Terry that day. She also refused to identify a photo of Kyron, and she declined to say whether she knew Kane. So she clearly knew who Kyron was, and she also clearly knew who Kane was, but she refused to actually answer any single question. Dee Dee seems very annoying. Yeah. In 2012, Kane said in a hearing that police told him they have more probable cause to think Terry Horman was involved in Kyron's disappearance than they did two years ago. Despite all this, and this kind of seemed to go on for, you know, over a year, Desiree dropped the suit against Terry in July 2013. She said that she did this so that she wouldn't interfere with the police investigation. Terry and Kane's divorce was fully finalized in 2013, and as I said before, Kane was awarded full custody of Kiara.
3: Two years after the boy's disappearance, Kyron's biological mother filed a civil lawsuit against Terry Horman, later dropped.
4: The time has come for Terry to take responsibility for what she has done and
1: to tell me and my family where Kyron is and how he got there.
3: Terry Horman tried to change her name and appeared yeah. on the witness stand before a judge denied the request.
4: Kyron Horman is missing, he needs to be found. I love my son, I want him home more than anything.
3: Carrie, what's your reaction to the judge denying this name change? Hi Kyle, no thank you. Horman, who now lives in California, has maintained her innocence, appearing on national TV and magazines.
4: She talks about Kyron's disappearance and also what she calls a bogus murder for hire plot to kill her husband.
1: I don't believe she'll ever be truly honest about what happened. I think even when we find Kyron,
4: she will not reveal what happened that day.
1: So back to Kyron's story. In 2013 and 2014, Terry petitioned to the court to be able to change her name. I'm assuming so she could get away from all the Kyron mess that was surrounding her. She tried first to change her name to Claire Stella Sullivan. The judge denied the request and said that basically this was due to the ongoing investigation into Kyron's case. She tried again four months later and she requested that her name be changed to Claire Kiesel, K-I-S-I-E-L. She told the court that she needed a new name to start over a new life without having the stigma of Horman attached to it. She said she hadn't been able to find a job for the past four years, and that she was also worried that her life had been threatened and she was worried about her safety. But in December 2014, Terry withdrew her name change request. As far as I can tell, she's still Terry Horman, Legally, whether or not she actually uses that name, I don't know. But Not um, really a great
0: look when you're like under suspicion for having something to do with what happened to Kyron to be more concerned about changing your name to get rid of the stigma of Kyron versus actually,
1: you know, finding this kid. (laughs) Exactly. So the years went on. We're now at 2016. Terry appeared on the Dr. Phil show. Dr. Phil asked her why she had waited so long to speak out. And she said, "I was advised from the beginning by law enforcement, by my husband at the time by attorneys in the beginning not to say anything. I've always wanted to I've asked multiple times to speak out and have not been allowed, so I doubt that's true after six entire years after he went missing. but yeah anyway, law enforcements like, don't say anything. <laughs> oh they would be the ones wanting her to talk I would assume. yeah
2: because've <laughs> I've seen footage and and all of the press asking you." about that, and you're saying, no, everything's fine, that's all a rumor? I was told
4: to. I was told by law enforcement when that particular thing had at, they told me. If you get caught by the media for any reason, if they come on you and you're not expecting it, uh, just whatever you can make up at the time, just make sure, just tell them everything's fine if they ask. That's what I was told to say.
2: But you lied to the media?
4: Yes. But in that case, yes, because I was told to.
2: So. So some cop tells you to lie about your status and you say okay. Some cop tells you don't go and talk about finding your son and you say okay. I, I, don't, I don't understand that. It would seem to me if your son is missing, absolute transparency would be your number one tool in finding that child. Transparency and getting out there and putting the word out there, transparency and saying, I don't want any drama, I don't want any mystery, I'm going to tell you the truth about anything and everything, but instead, you, you don't speak out, and when you're asked questions about the status, you, you lie about it. That doesn't, I, I don't understand that, and if, and if you did follow that advice, why are you speaking out now?
4: Because he needs to be found.
2: We need to be found, then.
4: Yes, I was. I was told not. I was told not. I was following orders. I'm doing what I'm told to do because I want him found. They're saying do it a certain way, and I did everything I was ever asked to do. I spoke openly for hours on end with investigators, open book. Told them every horrible little dirty secret I ever had in my life, anything that was going to help to find him, anything. I didn't care. It's it, but. I could see how, if somebody's not on the inside of what's going on, how they could, could see it a different way. But I, I did everything I was supposed to do, and it still wasn't good enough. And everything gets twisted and turned, and it, is, it became this um, just this attack against me instead of the focus of being him. I, after I retained an attorney, then I was told not to talk. And I asked him to talk for me, and he wouldn't.
2: Uh, I've worked with law enforcement a lot. And I've heard them say to principals involved in a case, don't talk to the media. I've never heard them say, tell them a flat out lie about your status. I've never heard that. They ask you about your marital status, lie.
4: They said if you get caught off guard, you say whatever you need to to get them to get out of your space.
1: When asked about what she thought had happened to Kyron, she gave another theory, which was kind of a new one. She said there was a man in a white pickup truck, a Ford, parked on Highway 30 at the 7-Eleven near the school. He was acting very strangely and he was addressed by one of the employees because he had been pacing back and forth in front of the 7-Eleven for an hour. She said, the guy, I'm not sure what the entire conversation was about, but I do know from these witnesses that the man asked the employees where the nearest school was, and the employee told him Skyline Elementary. Seems very convenient that this is the first time this story's ever come up. He was just trying to go to the science fair. (laughs) But yeah, also very convenient. Um So 2016 was not a great year for Terry. She went on Dr. Phil. She was arrested in California also for driving a stolen car and she was booked into Marin County Jail. She was later released on bail. She also faced charges that year for domestic abuse. She threatened her living boyfriend at the time with a knife and he ended up filing for a restraining order against her. She was also charged after allegedly stealing a gun from her roommate. Desiree spoke to the media after all these kind of crazy things that happened with Terry. She said, everything that's been happening is just what we know about her true nature and that she's a criminal. I think, that, I think that when she goes out there and grants interviews with Dr. Phil and continues to lie and not give us anything of value, it is somewhat frustrating because we're here dealing with the aftermath, every day living without answers and living without Chiron. So in 2018, Terry remarried. So that was at least her fourth marriage that we know of. There may have been more, but um, her fourth, fourth marriage. Fourth marriage and like fifth guy in this story <laughs> so far. Yeah. So she got married on March 17, 2018 in Clark County in Nevada. So she'd moved again. So from Oregon to California, she was now in Nevada as of 2018. June 4, 2020 marked 10 years since Kyron disappeared. He was due to turn 18 in September, 2020, and he should have been graduating. Desiree spoke to Oregon Live at that time, and she said, all of the markers are really hard. The fact that I don't get to be a part of that, it makes me angry. Someone took that away from us and it's not right. 10 years is hard. I hope we aren't here in a year. And then she said, I want Terry to do the right thing. I just want her to end this torture. We just want to bring Kyron home. So Desiree has clearly been the most vocal person in this case and in Kyron's family. The most recent updates, even though there's nothing really happening publicly, are from February 2022. Desiree organized a rally um, along with supporters outside the Multnomah County DA's office. She said that she tried to set up a face-to-face meeting with the DA Mike Schmidt last year, but it hasn't happened. She said, I want the DA to know who I am and to know who Kyron is. I want him to make Kyron a priority again. And the DA has also released a statement. He said, my heart goes out to Kyron's family and their dedicated and compassionate community they have built around his disappearance. To date, this case is open and we remain committed to investigating new facts and, ev- and evidence should either surface. Um, So that is about it in terms of the facts for Kyron's case and up to date as of March 2022. Um, I had a look online. There are a lot of varying theories about his case, and I thought it might be interesting just to chat about some of them today. There are many people who believe that Terry is actually innocent. Um, Some people um, have suggested that something may have happened with someone at Kyron's school, which was why he was never reported as absent that day. Um, apparently there was some behavioral things going on with Kyron, which may have been part of the doctor's appointment that Terry had apparently organized for him. Um, it's never been confirmed, but that is a theory that's online. Um, there's another theory that Kyron wandered off and got lost. When I've asked people what they thought, a lot of people have actually said they do believe he's around the school somewhere, which I don't know. I figure the search seems to have been so thorough that they surely would have found him, but I guess stranger things have happened. Um, I did find a comment online kind of about their area around the school. It said, if you look at a satellite image, you can see it is surrounded by miles of thick forest without many roads breaking it up. I always thought it was possible he wandered deep into the forest and became lost and died. I feel like Kyron was probably old enough. Like, obviously, you know, kids do things sometimes for whatever reason, but I just feel like that's a bit of an unlikely scenario in my opinion.
0: I've always thought that, and I know you've mentioned as well, that it just – seems like terry has something to do with it i did i thought it could be possible too that he wandered away from the school got lost or something but i just feel like he seemed very excited about the science fair and like that's like a fun thing for kids to do and they were meant to go to the science fair and go around in their little groups with a chaperone and like hang out with your friend like it was like a fun school day so i don't see why he would wander away or like sneak out like wouldn't he want to be at the science fair with this project that he was so proud of
1: Yeah, I know. It seems like a strange day to wander around, you know. And with so many people around,
0: would they notice him, like all these extra people? Like I feel like at least half of them had to be decent people where if they saw a kid wandering around alone,
1: they would be like, hey, get out of the friggin' woods. (laughs) So I personally think that Terry... Did something to Kyron in that 90 minute drive. I still can't quite figure out how she killed him or how she got him out of the school with nobody seen. Maybe she did tell him that they were going to the doctors and he assumed he would be going back to school, which is why he went kind of willingly. Um, I do feel that she felt he was hindering her relationship with Kane and was too much trouble. So she probably wanted him gone for that reason. Um, as I said earlier, his case really reminds me of Timothy Pitson's case. Timothy went missing in 2011. His mother, I th- believe they'd been having custody issues as well, the father and mother, and the mother took him on like a road trip. They went to a theme park and stuff and she took her life and left a note saying that he was safe but had never, would never be found and police looked at all the dirt and debris that was found on her car to try and figure out the areas that she may have driven and left Timothy but he has, is also still missing. Desiree also kind of spoke about Kyron and Terry's relationship, which I guess supports my opinion that maybe Terry did do something to him. Desiree said, Kyron became increasingly unhappy about not spending time with me. He wanted to come and live with us. Several times he would just break down and just sob because he wanted to stay. I wonder if maybe she really did think
0: that he had a doctor's appointment that day and just like had the date wrong. So maybe that's why she like took him out of the school, was planning to bring him back. And then realized she had the date wrong while they were driving. And she was just, like, so... Inf- Clearly, from the emails, Kyron had already been annoying her. And maybe she was just so, like, infuriated that something happened. Or, I don't know. The whole, like, just the doctor's appointment thing is weird. And taking him from the school is weird. Like, I just think it's so crazy for someone to plan to kill a kid that I'm leaning towards, did something accidental happen? But But even, like, what? I don't know. It's very... I feel like Terry did something, but I don't know what or why. Well, I mean, the why is because it goes similar with T of where they like blame the kid for their failing marriage. And like in the beginning, Terry was apparently all about the kid left her job to be home more. And I feel like that's because she's trying to impress Kane, trying to get him to like really like her, trying to like put on a show for him because Terry seems very into getting men. And then when she had Kane, she was like, fuck them kids and seemed like a piece of shit.
1: Yeah, I was just looking up because I feel like maybe the area around that bridge that the police focused on is quite important. I looked up the bridge to see if maybe, as a theory, she could have possibly thrown him from the bridge and he could have drowned. Um, There was an old bridge and they opened a new bridge in 2008. So it looks like the old bridge was around 80 feet or 24 meters above the water. It's pretty high. Yeah, so... He only weighed 50 pounds, like I'm sure that she could have, but you would have think that he would, they would have found him if she did something to him off that bridge, maybe. Yeah. Especially because he wasn't missing for that long before, you know, it wasn't like it was a week and he could have floated as, you know.
0: I'm confident in my opinion that she did, was involved but after
1: that, it's just very mysterious. I feel like Dee Dee must know more as well, no matter what DD says. Like, I'm sure that maybe if it is true that she's like, Terry wouldn't do anything. Maybe Terry told her it was an accident. But why else would they need untraceable cell phones? Why else would Dee Dee leave her work? Like, I feel like Dee Dee also knows more about what's going on. So that is it for Kyron's story. Um, I just had a look before we recorded. There's nothing, you know, obviously nothing really new besides Desiree's rally a few weeks ago. At the time he disappeared, Kyron was 3 foot 8 and he weighed 50 pounds. Obviously, if he's still alive, that would be different now. But he had brown hair and blue eyes. He was last seen wearing a black T-shirt with the letters CSI in green and a handprint graphic on it. Black cargo pants, white socks and black sketches sneakers with orange trim. He also wears metal framed glasses. So if you have any information about this case, you can contact your local FBI office. Kind of creepy. He was wearing a CSI shirt. <laughs> I guess for his science fair. Like that's actually really uh, sweet. Like now I'm sad. I, I would assume that's why he probably picked the shirt that day. But poor kid. He seems so sweet. He's got a sweet little face. And I know that little
0: picture. He's got the biggest smile. I was so excited about his frogs. His red tree frogs.
1: Yeah. <sighs> There has been one other biggish update in one of our biggest cases this week about Gabby Petito. Um, Thursday, March 10, the Petito family filed a civil suit against the Laundry family. Joseph Petito and Nicole Smith accused Christopher and Roberta Laundry of shocking, atrocious and utterly intolerable actions and of causing them to suffer pain and suffering and mental anguish, as well as the loss of capacity for enjoyment of life. So this is obviously in regards to the murder of Gabby by their son, Brian Laundrie. The basis for the lawsuit is that the Petito family believe that the Laundries knew about Gabby's death the day after it happened. They're alleging that Brian told his parents about the death slash murder on August 30. And on September 2, the family retained their lawyer, the, sorry, the Laundry family retained their lawyer, Stephen Bertolino. Um, and then the laundries cut off all communication with the Petitos. Roberta Laundry blocked Nicole Smith um, and blocked her on Facebook and also via phone so that no messages or texts could be delivered to her. The Petitos also believe that
0: Brian's parents were helping him to try to leave the country. The lawsuit says the lawsuit says while Joseph Petito and Nicole Schmidt were desperately searching for information concerning their daughter, the laundries were keeping the whereabouts of Brian Laundry a secret, and is believed they were making arrangements for him to leave the country. The laundry family lawyer, Bertolino, made another dumb statement on Friday, march eleventh, the day after the suit was filed. He said As I have maintained over the last several months, the Laundries have not publicly commented at my direction, which is their right under law. Assuming everything the Petitos allege in their lawsuit is true, which we deny, the lawsuit does not change the fact that the Laundries had no obligation to speak to law enforcement or any third party, including the Petito family. This fundamental legal principle renders the Petitos' claims to be baseless under the law.
1: The documents, they're all online. I'll pop them all up on the blog if you want to read the whole... Um, you know, I think it's only nine pages or something like that if you want to read the whole thing.
0: There's not anything like too crazy and it's mostly information we knew or assumed. And there's also, it just came out while we were courting that a Florida judge set a June 30th court date in the civil lawsuit filed by Gabby Petito's parents. We will probably find out more then. Yeah, It's interesting because even though it's terrible, I feel like what um, their shitty lawyer said
1: isn't totally wrong. You know what I mean? No. Well, they didn't essentially – they had no obligation to speak to the Petito family. It just would have been, I guess, ethically and morally the right thing to do.
0: Yeah, so I'm interested to see how this will go. If I do think it'll bring out more information, which is good, and I feel like that's kind of more what the Petitos want as well, like more to be known about how shitty the Laundry family was. They definitely knew something bad happened for them to have blocked and ignored – Gabby's parents so quickly
1: exactly I did ask on the Instagram what people thought about this lawsuit and I would say probably 99% of people were like good go get them these people are the worst they're trash there was a few comments that said you don't know what you would do if it was your child as in if you if you were Brian's parents what would you do if your child was in that situation <laughs> yeah so, I, mean, that's, I don't know that's true like we've always kind of said that as well but like that doesn't mean. I guess that. no parent ever expects to be in that situation. And essentially, as a parent, your first instinct is to protect your child. And you know,
0: but it's like again, it's like Brian's Brian's family made their choices, and Gabby's family is making their choices. So sure, Brian's family chose to protect their son. That they they can do that, and Gabby's family can call them pieces of shit and <laughs> uh, make a civil lawsuit against them and try to. Let the world know that what they did was shitty. So it's like, yeah, yeah. they can protect their son, but Gabby's family can also um, be
1: outspoken about how it was garbage. So it'll be interesting to see what comes of this lawsuit. June 30, you said is the date, I think.
0: Yeah. I'm hoping the
1: information will come out maybe from,
0: I don't know, I feel like Brian would have been smart enough to like not put anything in writing or like on the phone in text messages. I still want to know what, what's what's in the notebook. I know.
4: <laughs>
0: Tell us what it says. Literally word for word. I want to see pictures of it. I want to know what his handwriting looks like. I want to see it. Hopefully one day soon. I wonder if it'll come out. Well, I feel like once the case is closed, then someone can do a Freedom of Information Act for it. But I feel like this case still isn't technically closed.
1: No, I agree. But like, it's weird. And because someone was like, so I think someone asked me the other day, do you think they'll ever release the notebook? And I said, I feel like they have to because they're not searching for anyone. Like they know essentially what happened. What reason would they have to keep it back? Yeah,
0: they, they've they never closed the case still. They gave their statement about how the notebook. They said it was Brian going to be closed shortly. Yeah, that's they? what it was. Yes. Yeah, That's how I remember being like, okay, it's still
1: not closed. Maybe that's why they're not closing it. I feel like too, one good thing about this case is that brian's death happened in florida and florida is very open generally with records and things like that so if it was going to come out anywhere i feel like the notebook will eventually be released but who knows when
0: florida and colorado great great states to get info from yeah and texas (laughs) indiana's okay Mm. yeah that's everything for this episode don't really have any other updates on cases it's been kind of like quiet i feel in the true crime world i don't know do you feel like that yeah. I feel like nothing like huge crazy has happened. Been a lot of very quick cases. Um... Yeah, it's been a little quiet, I feel. All right, so obviously, as always, everything will be on the blog. You wanna see the cute little picture of Kyren on the blog. You wanna see anything else, on the blog, truecrimesocietyblog.com. You can follow us on Instagram at truecrimesociety. That's kind of where we post the most updates throughout the day. Um, the quickest way is to just, like, check out our stories, see what's going on, post a lot of articles. You can follow our personal accounts. Mine is StephSum underscore. Olivia's is TCSOlivia. They are both linked in the True Crime Society bio. So if you forget, you could just go there and follow us both. We have the forum at truecrimesociety.com if you want to just do some reading on cases. It's a great place to go through a bunch of stuff. And if you haven't left a review of the podcast yet, you can leave a review on Apple Podcasts and you can leave a rating on Spotify now. So please do that. That is very helpful to us when you guys do that. And also, if you guys can subscribe, like, I know it seems useless because you're like, well, I know that episodes come out every Thursday and I look forward to them and I listen to them right away because I'm such a big fan. Why do I need to subscribe? It's actually very helpful to podcasts if you subscribe to them. Like, it it does matter. (laughs) Um, So if you guys could do that, that'd also be great. I know I'm asking for a lot of favors. And... (laughs) (laughs) And if you guys could check out our sponsors from this episode, we have Magic Spoon and Little Spoon. Gotta be easy to remember. Magic Spoon, Little Spoon. They're both great. Um, Make sure to check out those and use our codes for a discount. We will put them in our Instagram story. Again, very helpful if you guys could check those out. And check out the podcast we mentioned earlier, Murder Diaries. If you like this podcast, you will definitely like that one. Um, Is that everything? That's it. All right. Well, then we will be back next week with another episode. Thank you guys for listening and we will chat next week. Bye. See
2: ya. Bye.